Hi, I'm Evan from Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm Nicole from Toronto. I'm Jake from Chattanooga. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. This year, comedian Michael Ian Black wrote a new memoir. Up until now, Black had been known on screen for being kind of, frankly, smarmy, which works in sketch comedy or when you're a talking head on VH1. I have a knack for saying awful things. Uh... <laughs> And I'm I'm happy with that. But it is not the totality of how I want to present myself to the world. It, it, it can feel a little bit limiting. It can feel a little bit constraining. And part of the reason that I wrote this book was to start dismantling that persona. It's bullseye. This week... Michael Ian Black talks about his memoir, You're Not Doing It Right, tales of marriage, sex, death, and other humiliations. Plus, he explains why he started compulsively Googling the phrase, Fat Kevin Federline. The writer Tom Bissell recalls his path to creative success and why that road probably doesn't exist anymore. And comedian Pete Holmes reveals the thing that really ticks him off, a bad sandwich. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by some of our favorite culture critics to recommend things that are worth your time. This week, we're doing comic books with Alex Zalbin of MTV Geek and Brian Heater of the Daily Crosshatch. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. Oh, so good. Better than Alex. Brian, I'm going to start with you and your recommendation, Cleveland by Harvey Picar. Picar, of course, is famous as the creator of American Splendor um, and was actually a guest on this show one time, one of my all-time favorite guests. Um, tell me a little bit about this title, which I had actually never heard of. This is his first uh, posthumous release. It's really – and, you know, I, I think as far as, uh, you know, if you really had to pick – uh, a book in his career to really kind of come out and, and I think be uh, sort, sort of an overarching look at what he's done. This is a pretty good one. You know, in the past few years, Harvey's really moved towards um, uh, non-autobiographical nonfiction. You know, he's he did Macedonia, which was uh, a look at um, some of the, the politics in that area of the world. He did a book about the uh, uh, students for a democratic society. Uh, and, and Cleveland really kind of skirts the line, I think, between uh, the autobiography that, we, that we've come to know and love from uh, American Splendor and uh, sort of a, just a, a more uh, historical look at, uh, at the city that he spent his entire life in. Alex, let's talk about uh, Paul Chadwick's Concrete and specifically your recommendation, the uh, collected issues of the series Human Dilemma. Um, it was, of course, a long-running comic book series collected in various narrative volumes. Um, he is basically a regular superhero. This is one of my favorites, too. But it is the least action-packed superhero comic that's ever existed <laughs> And is mostly given over to sort of uh, uh, contemplation. Yeah, I mean, the setup is great. It's a regular guy who ends up being kidnapped by aliens and put into a rock body, which you would think, okay, then he's going to go and fight crime. But pretty much immediately he sits down and starts thinking about stuff. And most of the series is taken up with that. Uh, it, 
I, you know, I don't want to imply that it's not exciting at all because it actually really is. And it's some of the smartest, most thoughtful writing that I think I've ever read. Um, the Human Dilemma in particular, that's the most recent collection, though not the most recent stories. And that looks at overpopulation and not to spoil too much, but concrete who we think is, you know, a guy because he's a guy's brain and a body, he may or may not end up pregnant in this <laughs> book. Uh, so it's funny. Uh, it's uh, There's a great amount of emotion in there. Uh, and it's actually, not to get too weird or make it too weird in here, but it's also, I think, the sexiest comic book I've ever read, where I was reading it in a car with other people, and I was like, I feel a little uncomfortable reading this. But if you're looking for a mature comic book that... Uh, really actually deals with issues in a smart and fun way. Uh, Concrete is perfect. Alex Albin recommends Concrete by Paul Chadwick and specifically the most recent collection, Human Dilemma. Brian Heater recommends Cleveland by Harvey Picar. Thanks, guys, for joining us on Bullseye. Thanks for having us back. Thanks, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Michael Ian Black, made his name in comedy as a college dropout, a member of The State, the sketch comedy group on MTV in the 1990s. He's also worked extensively as an actor um, on the beloved show Ed, among many others, as a man who made smarmy comments about various pop cultural phenomena on VH1 when that was the sole form of programming that VH1 carried and um, most recently has become one of the internet's most popular jokesters on Twitter with, I just looked and it was over 1.7 million followers. His new book, which is his second book of comic writing, is called You're Not Doing It Right. It's very different from his first. His first was in keeping with the comedic persona that he's developed over the past 20 or so months, years. Months. <laughs> um, no, over the past 20 or so years, his new book, however, is not at all arch or semi-ironic or uh, snarky. In fact, it's, uh, very, it's a very sincere look at uh, family and uh, both the joys and difficulties of the deepest relationships in our lives. I thought we'd kick things off with a clip from his stand-up comedy album, Very Famous. He talks a little bit in, in this clip about his relationship with his kids. As it turns out, having kids isn't all that it's cracked up to be. I had a bad experience with my kids last week. It's my son's birthday, and he decided he wanted a cat for his birthday. And I didn't want a cat, because we had had another pet. My son had a hamster, and the hamster did what hamsters do. It died. (laughs) And that was traumatic for the kids, you know what I mean? And I didn't want to go through that again with another pet, You know, cats live 20 years. Well, you know, hey, what killed the cat, you guys? What killed the cat? Curiosity? Curiosity? No. Feline leukemia. (laughs) 
Uh, Michael Ian Black, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show. Great to be here. You started doing stand-up comedy relatively late in your comedy career. Um, it was only, what, about maybe 10 years ago that you that you really earnestly started doing stand-up? Oh, much less than that. Probably five years ago, four years ago. Um, tell me why you decided to do that. Because I had always admired the form very much and... Uh, Decided ultimately that if I was ever going to try my own hands at it, I, I had better start doing that. So when my last TV show got unceremoniously canceled, um, as all of my TV shows do, I had some Usually, time. we should explain that usually in Hollywood, they have what's called a canceling ceremony. That's right. <laughs> where, where you are presented uh, with the corpse of your show, <laughs> and it's put on a pyre and lit. Uh, a lit <laughs> pushed out to sea. Yes, and it's a gorgeous, beautiful, heart-rending ceremony. Uh, because I work primarily on basic cable, they don't have that kind of budget. Right. So at best, it's a phone call. Right. So my last TV show, Michael and Michael Have Issues, was canceled, and I was sort of heartbroken and, and, and didn't really know what to do with myself. And rather than jump back into television to get my heart broken yet again, I decided to focus on stand-up, to just sort of take a, a sabbatical from television and really focus on stand-up, more as a challenge to myself than anything else, just to see if I could do it, just to see if I could get good at it. Um, and the jury's still out on that. I mean, here's the thing. I think that... There is nothing that will, and you know this as uh, you know a member of the comedy community for twenty years when you started doing this. That there is nothing that will upset a, a longtime stand-up comedian more than a stand-up comedy dilettante, mm -hmm. someone that they see as being a stand-up comedy dilettante. I mean, it used to be you will still hear. I I still sometimes hear a stand-up comedian that I know complaining about the phenomenon in the mid-80s of actors doing stand-up to get acting jobs. Uh, yeah. I'm not familiar with that phenomenon. That has not happened since like 1986. Right. You know, it was like Michael Keaton or something. I don't know whether Michael Keaton is an example of this, but he is either inspired But he is a or, something. If yes. not a direct example of this yes. in the sentence or something, he could be the something. So he's either, he's either an inspiration for or an example of this. Right. But, you know, that stand-up comedians having, you know spent 20 years having to hone their craft in order to just not get things thrown at them, mm -hmm. hate anybody that they think might possibly be a dilettante. Right. And you knew that when you started. Oh, I'm of course. Sure. Yes, but... Uh, yes, I'm aware of that. B, uh, yes wasn't A. Yes, A, <laughs> I'm aware of that. B, it wasn't like I had never done stand-up before. Um, um, I'd spent actually a lot of time in the early 90s doing alternative comedy in the, in, the, in the very early New York alternative comedy rooms that existed. There were only a couple of them. And I would hang out there and, and hang out with, with uh, probably some of the people you're describing. So I had some experience. But what I didn't have was a real – I hadn't spent time developing it as a craft in, in a real significant way. I hadn't really delved into it. In a, in a conscious, thoughtful manner. Um, and so I don't, I, you know, I, I, I don't apologize for doing it later. Um, it, it was something that I felt like I wanted to do, and I did it. I mean, that's a thing that is 
remarkable to me because I know that for me, you know, I'm 30 years old and I've been hosting this show for 10 years. And the prospect of starting even in a even in a directly related new field, <laughs> you know what I mean? You'd be a wonderful news broadcaster, for example. Thank you very much. Um, you're just saying that because of my gleaming white teeth, but I appreciate and it. And gleaming white skin. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I use gleam on both. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I, I like the prospect of starting even in a related field, especially one where it's not necessarily a, you know, welcoming with open arms environment. You have to really choose that. Like, it's not just a, you can't, you can't sort of casually you know, tiptoe into it. No, I had to really jump in with both feet. And the way to do that was to start booking myself in comedy clubs, which I had avoided, uh, to use the trite phrase, like a plague for years, because I, I thought they were sort of these cheesy, overpriced places um, where only a specific kind of comedy was going to be welcome. I thought my audience wouldn't wouldn't seek me out in those places and I was just afraid I was just afraid I, I I was afraid I couldn't go over in those places so I specifically sought those places out I specifically said this is the kind of place I want to play because I want to challenge myself in this environment I want to see what it's like I want to do those six shows over the course of a weekend with an audience who may not be there specifically to see me they might have just come out for a night of comedy I want to deal with the bachelorette parties I want to deal with the drunk guys. I want to. I want to uh, envelop myself in this world to see if I can handle it. I mean, it was like a walkabout or something. Why did you want that? Because I, I had something to that prove to myself. Hor- You're describing something horrible. <laughs> yeah, but I had something to prove to myself. I, 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 I wanted to prove to myself that I didn't exist solely comedically on the periphery of comedy that 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 I was capable of writing jokes that could appeal to people that weren't 22 year old hipsters with ironic mustaches it was it was important to me i don't know why it was a challenge was it partly because you yourself were no longer a 22 year old hipster with an ironic mustache yes, or equivalent absolutely it was absolutely part of that that i felt like there's going to come a time and that time might be coming very soon when that audience no longer is interested in me or what I have to say. And I have to figure out ways to broaden uh, my audience. I have to figure out ways to appeal to other people that might sound cynical. I don't mean it to, um, to me, it's, it's practical. It's, 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 it's just a practical thing that I, that I have to think about as I, as I get older. Maybe you are different too, though, right? Yes, I absolutely am different, and my sensibility is changing. And obviously, I, like any comedian, will talk about what's going on in my life. And my in my life right now, I have a wife and I have kids, and um, the the people who are coming to see me don't necessarily share those things. Um, I hope that I can speak to them in a way that they find funny and relatable, but I also hope that other people will come along for that ride. You have, uh, of the 11, I think it is, members of the state, the sketch comedy group that you started with. Is that the right number, Mm -hmm. 11? Um, You have the, probably the most developed comic persona. Um, You know, in a a sketch comedy group, um, you know, there are are people who are, you know, chameleonic 
which is a word that I hope means like a chameleon. It does. That's exactly what that word means. And there are people with a... But it it ends with a Q. It doesn't end IC, as you might think. It ends IQ. And also it's an energy drink. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, But there are, you know, there are people who, you know, are a man of a thousand voices. And there are people who bring a, you know, who bring a really strong persona to the table. And I think that you, in all of your work, have always brought a persona that you have refined over the years. Um, and, you know, I think that that was, you know, one of the biggest touchstones in your career was th- all of the VH1 stuff that you did, where you were one of the defining voices of this, I mean, cultural phenomenon, like a thing that had a huge impact in our culture. And you were one of the biggest parts of it because you were so good at it. Um, and that involved you making this persona really big and intense. Yes, that's uh, right. And and at some point, like that persona, which was um, very grating, smarmy, annoying, obnoxious, fey. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna say smug and arch, maybe. Oh, but we could we, look. We could list adjectives <laughs> all day. You don't want to include charming, like roguishly charming, in there. But absolutely no. I mean, I think that the the reason that you can do it, I mean, just just like you know, just just like the reason anyone who can do that can do it is because of the fact that you're charming. I mean, you know, why can Joel McHale just go around acting like a jerk? It's because he's very he's great at it. Right. And he's <laughs> he's not, very charming and funny and talented. Got tremendous pecs too. I think that helps. That's I don't have true. the pecs. Yeah. He's like 6'5", also. He's a huge man, so he could just take down anybody who... But anyway, Joel McHale aside, I mean, you had this really big persona that was who you were in public. And at some point, that must have been... I I imagine that to be, like, a little bit uncomfortable. It was, and it is, and part of the reason that I wrote this book was to start dismantling that persona. Not that I want to turn my back on it exactly because I, I think I am good at it and I do find that stuff funny and I have a knack for saying awful things. Uh, (laughs) and I'm, I'm happy with that, but it is not the totality of how I want to present myself to the world. It, it, it can feel a little bit limiting. It can feel a little bit constraining And it's not as much fun as it once was. So for me, it's important to start finding other sources of inspiration. And and the the obvious place to look for that is my actual life and my actual personality and and the person that I I think of myself as. Did you find people in real life that I guess were were reacting to you like you were your character? Not so much. Um, that was that wasn't really a problem. I, I mean, think I'm not talking about your family. No, I, mean, I know. I, I think uh, sometimes you know, like if I look at my Twitter feed and somebody met me, they'll say, "Oh, he wasn't he wasn't a <laughs> head at all," <laughs> which I guess is good, right? <laughs> I do find that I have to really make an effort to be kind to people, not because I don't want to be, but because I'm shy and self-conscious. And so it's hard for me to just take that moment with somebody and look them in the eye and shake their hand and, and, and accept what they have to to say to me. And generally it's, it's a compliment because that's, that's, 
generally what you say to people when you approach them. It's hard for me to do that. It's, it's, it's uninstinctive. And for years, I sort of pushed people away when they did that. Um, and that kind of got absorbed into my comedic persona. But again, it's like, it's, it, that's not how I want to portray myself to the world as, and it's not who I am. It, 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 it's an effort that I have to put forth to engage and be kind and, and to try. Trying is so hard. I hate trying. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the author and veteran comedian Michael Ian Black. He's co-founded a couple of comedy groups, performs stand-up, and has written several books. One of essays, one for kids, one with Megan McCain, and one memoir called You're Not Doing It Right. You write in the book about um, fat Kevin Federline, Mm -hmm. um, which is... Uh, a subject that you you become in writing the book very interested in, which is the sort of latter day Kevin Federline, who folks might, uh, you know, he was married to Britney Spears and was a a dancer, um, a professional dancer. That's how he met Britney Spears, and um, later was not married to Britney Spears and became fat. Yeah. And that's pretty, that's like, uh, you don't really know much more about Kevin Federline besides that, I don't think. I don't know anything about him more than that. Okay, so tell me what you project onto fat Kevin Federline of yourself and your own worries. FKF, (laughs) as I call him, I found myself Googling images of fat Kevin Federline for hours at a time. Not really fully understanding why I was doing that. I'm still not sure I do. However, what I arrived at eventually was two things. One, I have, a, I have a, a, a very mild form of body dysmorphia where I feel I am always on the verge of obesity. Uh, if, if your listeners know what I look like, I'm a fairly thin guy. Right. But I have this fear that like tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I will have put on 80 pounds. And, and I don't know what the consequences of that, be, uh, of that would be other than maybe... I would lose everything. I don't know why. I don't know why one would follow the other, but it seems like perhaps they would. Well, it's possible that you work in show business. I don't know if maybe that's it the might case. open up. It, it might could open be up a whole that new you thing. Work in show biz. Maybe. All right. That, that yes. That, that maybe it's that. So I have body dysmorphia. So then coupled with that is, I think that's the initial attraction that led me to FKF, and then I look at him and I see somebody who who appears to my eye to be somebody utterly bewildered as to how he found himself in the peculiar circumstances of his own life. He's shirtless. He's got <laughs> cornrows. He's poolside. There's some sort of beverage in his hand. And, you know, he just, he just looks like the, uh, the before picture of the Ed Hardy diet plan or something like that. <laughs> And I just became fascinated by this imagery because, because it seemed to me that here is a guy who just doesn't know where he is. And I, I relate to that very much. I'm projecting onto him. Obviously, I don't know how he feels, but I find myself feeling that way, find myself feeling like I discover myself in the circumstances of a life I could not predict for myself. And yet here I am. In the book, I describe it as uh, deja vu is what I call it, this feeling of um, you know, deja vu, deja vu is when you, when you are, are doing something for the first time, but feel as if you've done it before. I have an opposite thing where I'm doing the things that I always do, 
and feeling like it's it's for the first time looking around and going like what is this like how how did i find myself in this house with these with these children and this woman who i am responsible for financially uh and emotionally but primarily financially i mean it seems like when you th- throw yourself into something that terrifies you um whatever it may be whether it's you know going up and doing stand up at a stand up club which i think is you know i think that's that's probably still kind of terrifying for a comedian who is as equipped to handle it as any person in the world it's probably still a little terrifying for jimmy pardo or bill burr mm-hmm. you know comedians who are as good at that as anyone um the thing about it is that you at least know that you're choosing right yeah I'm, I've made... Because the pain reminds you that you're choosing. <laughs> well, I've made all these conscious choices in my life. Marriage is exactly the same for me. Marriage was about as scary uh, an institution as, as anything, but I deliberately made the choice and made it very consciously about approaching it even though it scared me or maybe even partially because it scared me. Because I felt like, here is this person that I love and... I don't see us breaking up, but I'm not sure I believe in marriage. But if I don't see us breaking up, then why not sort of move forward? Why not take that next step other than fear? And I, I, in the book, I, 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 I mention, and this is absolutely true, I had this little mantra in my head going, choose hope over fear, choose hope over fear, which sounds very Oprah-esque. Um, and it was said in Oprah's voice, <laughs> but that's what I decided to do. And I, I decided to, to, to choose my hope for this relationship over the fears that I had for its dissolution. After a break, Michael Ian Black reflects on couples therapy. What I was hoping to hear from my therapist was that I am always right. <laughs> that was my expectation going in. And I was very disappointed when that was not borne out in our sessions. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Graham Clark, comedian and host of the podcast, Stop Podcasting Yourself, presenting a new stand-up special available online at thestandupcomedians.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and author Michael Ian Black. He's the author of a pair of books that are out this year, including a memoir called You're Not Doing It Right, Tales of Marriage, Sex, Death, and Other Humiliations. I mean, I, I can really, I really strongly related to you describing those feelings of thinking about whether or not you should get married because, you know, I was with my wife for a long time before we got married and we had been together literally since high school. Mm-hmm. And there is a point, I think there's something, there's something that is not often described because it's not that romantic, but there's something vaguely unnatural about the, I think the reason that, that the, that men often are the ones who ask women to marry them and that societal convention came from is there's something weirdly unnatural about it you know that there has to be a lot of things that have to go right in order for it to work which is you know which is what you want for something that's supposed to be for your entire life yeah right 
And I remember having that thought to myself, thinking like, okay, Jesse, like, A, you've been with this lady for years, and it's going great. Mm-hmm. Let me see how I can screw it up. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> like B, whenever you think about future years, this lady is also there. See, mm-hmm. you have no moral or other objection to marriage. Right. So what's the problem? Right. But it's, it's terrifying nonetheless. It's absolutely terrifying because, you do, because it's the one thing in your life you really don't want to screw up. To me, the, reason, the reasons to get married are kind of what you're describing. It's not so much that you're hoping all these things are going to line up and they're going to they're go right because inevitably they won't line up and they won't go right. But by taking that next step, in effect, what you're saying is when they go wrong, which they will do, we won't give up on it. We're not going to just untangle this knot and, and say, you know, Godspeed and, 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 and goodbye. We're making a commitment to it to, to just try to work through these things as they, as they come up. I'm certainly somebody who believes in divorce. Um, and six weeks from now, I will probably be divorced. Right. Because I only look at my marriage in six-week increments. But and I mean, you're also on a book tour where you're oh. exclusively talking about your marriage. And well, also, I mean, if you guys could see the studio dripping with hot ladies, it's it, nothing but hot ladies. I've never described that from part of every the corner of the world. It seems like right. It's it's incredible. Well, we don't have any Antarctic women, but uh, okay. I mean, you say it, I believe it. But from where I'm sitting, it's well, just light was wall to wall. It's gorgeous city here, right? So I don't, you know, to me, marriage was about making that choice to progress through life together. Um, maybe it's, it's probably a, a, a sort of, I, I know it is, it's a very sort of romantic notion. Um, and so, you know, so far it's been good. The but other, I've only been married for 10 days. <laughs> the other day I was at an estate sale and I was listening to This American Life on my headphones and... Uh, uh, Ira was talking to uh, Kurt Brownaller, the very funny New York comedian, and Kurt said something about how um, uh, he, if he ever entered into a marriage, he might like to have a, a clause in the marriage where after five years, I think it was, the the two the couple would say to each I heard other, this. yeah, the couple would say to each other, um, you know, are we still good? Uh-huh. And there it would basically be an out. It would be a five-year out clause, just a double-checking clause. And Ira, Ira said, "Well, in in my book, isn't that sort of the opposite?" And I nearly, I was so touched by what Ira said. Uh-huh. I mean, I I let, I know Kurt too, but I and and Kurt's awesome. It's not anti-Kurt, but um, well, you don't like Kurt, you don't like Kurt. It's no big deal. <laughs> big oaf. <laughs> He's going to be on the show soon. But um, I, I almost started crying, like, is standing in this um, estate sale, s- surrounded by 50-year-old Filipinas. Right. Um, Grieving Filipinos. I mean, because somebody had probably just died to precipitate this estate sale. Right. But, I mean, when someone dies, you, the family doesn't all get together at the estate sale. They go to, like, a funeral. and a, Oh, I suppose that's wake. right. Yeah, they don't. The celebration isn't held at the estate. It's, it's a very anti- it doesn't seem like a bad idea to me. A wake and estate sale is not... I mean, I understand for efficiency's sake. Yeah, you Because you only have to once. rent one venue. Yes. But 
it's just sort of like I mean it's sort of like having the fireworks display and the Marines funeral in the same place on the 4th of July save a lot of time right but it's just not quite the same tone uh-huh. I guess is the I issue I think I understand what you're saying right. and, and just we agree to disagree we'll move on <laughs> So a- anyway, a-, a lot of a-, a lot of what your book is about is about not just fighting in marriage, but fighting for marriage. That your relationship with your wife and your love for your wife and hers for you are so important to you that the pain and difficulties, which are tremendous, are absolutely worth enduring because you're in this marriage. I believe that I'm going to get corny uh, because that is my instinct these days. I do believe that the way we talk about love in society is faulty because we talk about falling in love and being in love, which to me makes it sound as if it is something that happens to you, a kind of passive act that washes over you and you are just swept away in its, in its unavoidable tidal currents. I don't believe that to be the case. I believe that love is a choice you make uh, and that marriage is a choice you make. And it's not a choice that you make once. It's a choice you, you literally have to make every day. You have to make it often many times in a day, which isn't to say that, you, you know, you just snap your fingers and you go, all right, I, I give up. But you do have to constantly, I have to constantly recommit to this idea of marriage pretty much every day. I have to recommit to the idea of love pretty much every day. It is something you have to put forth as opposed to something you hope to receive. Um, that's how I, I look at it. And I don't always succeed at it. I'm often terrible at it. I'm often somebody who is incapable of loving my wife. Uh, sometimes I'm incapable of loving my children. But in the next moment, you try again. Your parents had uh, a sort of an ill-fated marriage. They were star-crossed lovers, yes. Um, One a Capulet, one a Montague. Yes. But I I wonder if it made you think about what you wanted your family to be like when you had a family. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about how... If I thought about my sort of uh, adult relationships at all, I sort of envisioned that I would be, uh, uh, the phrase that I use in the book is an unrepentant fornicator of women. (laughs) I sort of thought I would just be a traveling bard going around from city to city, bedding homely young maidens, and then leaving, you know, with the next frigate out of port. That's sort of how I envisioned myself, if I envisioned myself at all. Or possibly in your semi-truck. Well, you do describe an interest in possibly being a long haul trucker. There was a moment in the 70s where being a long haul trucker was sort of the coolest occupation that a young boy could aspire to. There were books about it and movies and television shows about it. And I certainly was not immune from the lures of the open road. Uh, There were debates in my household, which is the better uh, truck company, Mac or Kenworth? And we would try to figure that out it's international actually well the correct did you know the correct answer is mac 
Uh, oh, if I only, stand corrected. Yeah, yeah, you, you're forgiven for not knowing that, but it, and it has to do with the hood ornament, which is a bulldog, right? A, a leaden, heavy bulldog. That's why it's a superior truck. So I gave up that dream. Uh, although I may return to it at some point. <laughs> I I didn't really envision marriage for myself. Not because I not because I had a, any specific objection to it. It just didn't seem like it was in my future. And it wasn't until I, I was in my 20s, probably, that I started thinking about it in any, any thoughtful way, which is probably what most people do. What did you think about it when you thought about it in your 20s? Well, before I met my wife, um, I, guess, I guess the older I got, the more receptive I was to it. But I still hadn't given up this idea of being a Lothario. Uh, in fact, I did everything I could to become a Lothario and you... was terrible at it. Yeah. <laughs> terrible at it. I, I just, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not good at seducing women. Uh, I'm not particularly good at, at sex. I don't have like, you know, the kind of body that's going to draw uh, the kind of ladies that I, I would like to me. And then I'm too like emotionally invested in like one night stands. It, I, I'm just not good at it. Um, but I was good at having long-term monogamous relationships. And once I accepted that, once I sort of wrapped my head around the fact that this is actually who I am, the idea of marriage became much more appealing. Tell me about how your life changed when you got married. Well, we'd, we'd been living together. And I don't know that it immediately changed because I think when we got married, it's like buying a new stereo or something and you just twiddle the knobs all the time and you're like oh this stereo sounds great and look it, it has this function and that function we can have all, all our presets and so you have that stereo and you're like this is an amazing stereo and then after a while you're sort of like the stereo isn't quite as enchanting as it once was you still like it but you're like hey, yeah i mean yeah i can play fmam and great it's fine and then at some point something goes wrong with the stereo and that's when you're married um it's something <laughs> that i eased into you know it wasn't something that that radically changed my life overnight. It, 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 it probably took years for me to feel as if I was married and really understood what that meant. You went to therapy with your wife and you're very frank about the thing that you, the sort of basic outline of what you learned in therapy uh, uh, or from therapy, uh, which was basically that if, if I might paraphrase that sometimes you're kind of a jerk and sometimes your wife is kind of crazy yeah oh yeah uh what i was hoping to hear from my therapist was that i am always right <laughs> that was my expectation going in <laughs> and i was very disappointed when that was not borne out in our sessions <laughs> although sometimes i did feel like i detected in my therapist's eyes a glint of acknowledgement that that I was probably right in most circumstances. Now, that might be projection on my part or just some sort of fervent hope. But yeah, I mean, I am often terrible. Uh, I do terrible things all the time. I don't mean to. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm aware that I'm doing it and sometimes I'm not, but I always feel self-righteous. I mean, that's that's... That's the one leg I have to stand on, is that I'm always self-righteous. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't act the way I acted if I didn't feel on some level that morally I was correct every single time I told her to clean the bathroom her damn self. <laughs> uh, 
And but what what was surprising is that you know my wife who. I think considered herself somewhat unflappable. Well, she didn't consider herself unflappable, but certainly didn't think that that uh, certainly didn't think that the focus would turn to her much the way I didn't think that, that the focus would turn to me. I think she entered therapy with the exact same expectations that I entered it with. That the therapist would say, "Yes, Martha, you're absolutely correct about everything that you say." I don't think she was quite prepared for the level of self-examination that she was put through. Um, that we've both been put through and it's been great. It's been really great. One of the things about writing a book that is so intensely personal and so intense as as intense as this book is that, um, you know, if, if you're a, if you're a single dude, um, and you're, you know, doing stand up comedy, you are sort of understood to be representing only yourself and your personal perspective on the world. And it's not even really, you know, I think most audiences expectations of a stand-up comedian are very broad in terms of interpretation of reality. You know, they are understood to be funny first and representing truth second. Mm-hmm. Um, and, when you write a book that's this intense about yourself and your family, um, you are representing publicly yourself and the people that are closest to you. And I'm presuming that your wife's not also going to write a book about your family. I'll sue her if she does. (laughs) And, (laughs) and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if, we'll see if your kids grow up to write a book about your family. I hope they do. Um, Reagan children's style. (laughs) Um, they'll have nothing but great things to say about their father. Um, but it, that's a, I mean, that's a really significant responsibility, especially if you have decided or find yourself not to just say platitudes. Yes. And of course I was aware of that, but my thinking, and this might've been faulty was that if I tell the truth, they can't be mad at me. (laughs) (laughs) it's possible that's faulty it's possible if i just tell the truth well that's what happened (laughs) um my thinking was i have the responsibility i have honestly was to presenting my story the way i experienced it now my wife was understandably reticent about me embarking on this pursuit and said, you're not doing that. And then I said, oh, I'll be fine. You're going to love it. And then uh, when it was finally done and she read it, uh, she, to my surprise, was okay with it. You know, she was like, yeah, that's kind of what happened. In the end, I mean, the books... uh sort of a a very passionate argument in favor of having these relationships i mean having having a marriage and having children that you love it's a passionate argument for me to have those things i'm definitely not out there as an advocate for anything I'm not saying marriage is right for everybody. Parenthood is right for everybody. 
I am saying that it was right for me. Um, dis- despite all my doubts, despite all the ways that I've fallen short, despite all the flaws that I have that I, 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 I've come to accept and, 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 and have tried to, to work on. Um, but it's been, it's been, it's been right for me and, and, and I assume will be for the next six weeks. Michael Ian Black is a stand-up comic actor and the author of several books, including the memoir, You're Not Doing It Right, Tales of Marriage, Sex, Death, and Other Humiliations. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Last year, Pete Holmes was named one of Variety's 10 comedians to watch. And as a stand-up, he has a mostly goofy and positive attitude. But there is one thing that really does set him off. A bad sandwich. Here's Pete Holmes from his album, Impregnated with Wonder. I ate at Subway today. I ate at Subway because I gave up. (laughs) I know we all go there. I know, we all go to Subway. It's always crowded. That's part A. Part B, it's horrible. You know this. You know. Remember when we used to make sandwiches as a people? Like 20 years ago, you'd gather the ingredients like an old-timey chef, and you'd take a bite and be like, now that's a sandwich. Then the first time you go to Subway, you're like, what the f*** is this? There's no discerning between the layers. It's like biting into an eraser. Everything at Subway tastes the same. It all tastes the way the restaurant smells. You know what I'm talking about? That vague cardboard sawdust smell. Everything, the sandwich, your soda, your receipt, it's saturated in that smell. And they do it in front of you, you know, because you see. And you can tell, because when you're in Subway and waiting in line, part of you is looking forward to your sandwich. But in the back of your mind, you're just like, something up is happening here. I can't quite put my finger on it, but the call is coming from inside the house. And they let you watch. That's their big idea. Like, you're like, you're a king. You're like, choose from the bounty. Tis been a good year. More orange tomatoes, my leash. It's gross. Have you ever, for the love of God, been in a subway when they run out of turkey? They don't just flick the lights, perfect blackness, flick them back on and have more. That's what they should do. What they do do is reach down into the bowels of hell and pull out another shrink-wrapped plastic tube of turkey with all the pieces the exact same size, laser-cut like coasters with the fake skin airbrushed on the side. They don't even try to hide it. They cut it out with that little yellow knife. Satan's air is released. And we just stand there like schmucks, like, yeah, three disgusting pieces. Can I have double meat? They're like, yeah. Everything's sitting in those black open-air S&M containers. You can see your reflection in the wet ham. It's gross! You shouldn't be able to watch someone make something so disgusting. Bring it from the back. That's what the back is 
for? If this is what they're doing in the front, what the hell are they doing in the back? Just like shaming a gorilla, like, no, low fat gorilla brand. Jared's naked up to here in marinara. It's like, eat fresh! Probably gonna go there tomorrow. Probably gonna eat there after the show. That's Pete Holmes from his album Impregnated with Wonder. You can find his podcast, You Made It Weird, on iTunes or at Nerdist.com, and follow him on Twitter at Pete Holmes, that's with a Z, H-O-L-M-E-Z. After a break, Tom Bissell talks about the creative process, and my favorite fictional guy, Malcolm Tucker, offers some creative language. If enough, you need to learn to shut your It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Hey guys, want to hear longer versions of the conversations on this week's episode? Go to MaximumFun.org to find them. And share them with your friends. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Tom Bissell is a nonfiction writer who's written extensively for basically all of your classiest nonfiction publications, including The New Yorker and Harper's. He's also a video game writer for Slate and Grantland. His collection of essays on creators and creation is called Magic Hours. It covers subjects ranging from Werner Herzog, a favorite of this program, to Chuck Lorre, the creator of Two and a Half Men, less of a favorite of this program. Tom, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. I am delighted to be here. How did it feel for you when, as you were writing the um, the opening piece in this book, which is about literary greats whose whose reputations were established by Board, yeah, borderline happenstance. Um, for example, uh, Herman Melville, who, you know, Moby Dick is... Moby Dick. Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe, I, maybe I should offer an introduction as to what <laughs> Moby Dick is. Um, so Moby Dick is Moby Dick, right? And uh, Herman Melville, basically in his career, he had had a... Earlier on in his career, he had had a very successful novel... Um, then his career basically washed out. Uh, Moby Dick was received very poorly. Terribly. Um, and it wasn't until he was pretty well long dead uh, that it was revived in the early 20th century um, and went on to become the template for, you know, uh, novels. <laughs> and, yeah, and how about the fact that I write about this, that there was a brief swell of people were like, Moby Dick is awesome. Do you know about this book, Moby Dick? And they gave it to Joseph Conrad, who, you know, one of the greatest novelists of all time, wrote Heart of Darkness, Nostromo, um, on, you know, Under Western Eyes, Victory. They give like the one guy that should have read Moby Dick and been like, oh my God, I can't believe this was forgotten. It's 1900. They give Conrad Moby Dick to write an introduction for a world classics line and Conrad reads it and it's like, this is bull crap. You know, I, this book is not good. And so then like another 15, 20 years go by before anyone takes another look at Moby Dick. It's just so sad, you know? So Melville, Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson are these three American writers whose reputations like had it not been for like just total accidents, you know, we might not have ever heard of them. And the essay came about because of my experience being a 24-year-old assistant editor at a publishing house and bringing back into the world the work of a writer named Paula Fox, who uh, has since become wonderfully recognized as like one of the, you know, 
best sort of post-war American novelists. She's 88 years old. She's Courtney Love's grandmother. And she wrote like a series of ass-kickingly great novels in the 70s and 80s. And I was this kid that convinced W.W. Norton to put some of them back into print, and they kind of took off. So that experience informed this essay where I was like, well, wait a minute, you know, this just happened because someone recommended this book to me and I read it and I liked it. And then just because I happened to be working here and because everyone was having a good day the day I brought it up and they wanted to like pat the eager kid on the head and let him, you know, spend thousand bucks on getting these books back into print. The, the complete randomness of these series of events just really kind of scared me. And that's where the essay came from. So then when I looked into the careers of some writers who, who, came very close to not making it. That was the first kind of serious piece of nonfiction I ever wrote, and it has really kind of tempered and driven my understanding of the creative process ever since. Melville is particularly scary, just to take him as an example, because not only did Moby Dick and Melville as an author almost not become, get recognized, he died unrecognized. Totally. So he and not only did he die unrecognized, he didn't die striving. Um, he died broken and given up. Yeah, he 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 had a, he had he had a hump in his career. So he was recognized, then destroyed, then destroyed, and never had his comeback while he was alive. It's not like he he always thought the 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 morning was around the corner. He thought his morning was behind him, and and that the morning had been wrong. He was a customs agent in uh, New York City. Um, that's how he spent his life. And he, he went to the Holy land near the end of his life and he couldn't get anyone to publish his account of it. So he wrote a private, he wrote and self published like a, my trip to the Holy land. And he wrote some poems just for family and friends, basically. I mean, his poems aren't very good, but, um, that's kind of how he ended his life. Just as kind of the eccentric dude who wrote stuff for his family and friends and who was kind of successful early in his life and then just kind of disappeared. I mean, imagine that archetype. He's probably all around right now. There's probably Herman Melville's that you and I have even read. And we're like, oh, that was interesting. And then that writer never wrote again. And then maybe 100 years from now, that's going to be the guy that people are going to look at you and me and go, why didn't they recognize him? That keeps me up at night. Like, who is the Melville out there right now working at some crappy post office job, you know, with his one novel behind him? I don't know. That's why when I sit on the subway or, I, or I'm you know, driving down the street or I'm walking, I'm always looking at people and I'm always trying to figure out what, what do they have in their closets? What are they working on if they're creative people? You can't really write anyone off. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tom Bissell. He's the author of Magic Hours, Essays on Creators and Creation. His writing explores the creative process in a variety of different fields, from war documentaries to literature to video games. You were uh, you were originally and and still are uh, partly a fiction writer, mm-hmm. and this is a book of nonfiction. And you never studied journalism or intended to be a journalist. Um, tell me about how you came into being a, a narrative journalist, a, you know, magazine writer in the Harper's New Yorker, big, big story and Esquire <laughs> type world. The first thing I tell my students, and I hope if there are any young writers out there wondering about how one goes about doing this, the first thing I say is don't go to journalism school. It's a waste of time. Um, I frankly just don't think they, I mean, they'll teach you how to write a magazine piece, but you can pretty, pretty much figure that out on your own. 
Did you know that at journalism school, they take other stuff from you besides time? <laughs> yeah, they're really expensive too. And, and, uh, you know, I, I'm really down on, on the whole graduate experience in writing. Um, my whole thing is I just got done teaching an MFA program, a really great one, Portland State University. And it's a great school. It had awesome students that I adored. I loved teaching them every minute and I had great colleagues, but I have to think more and more that asking young people to go sometimes tens of thousands of dollars into debt to pursue something that they have no guarantee of ever making a penny from feels to me kind of ethically dodgy. And I would never blame anyone for going to a place for a full ride, uh, you know, for, to grad school for, if, they, if they get a significant amount of money to do it. But there are very few, for whatever reason, magazine writing programs or journalism programs that give free rides. There are very few. Tons of fiction programs do it, but relatively few nonfiction magazine writing programs do it, I think because it's assumed that you can make a living. So, um, <laughs> so well, in the booming magazine, the, the, the booming magazine industry, which is just doing so well. Uh, so, uh, I, I started doing this cause I was a fiction writer, right. And I had an internship at Harper's magazine, a dude that I was an intern with, um, named Donovan Hone, who's become a very excellent writer in his own right. Um, since then he became an editor at Harper's and I went off to do something else. And he liked my stories and he thought that I had a nonfiction piece in me. You know, that's what they say when they're trying not to get your hopes up. So he's like, look, if you ever have an idea, just come to me and tell me and we'll see what we can do. And I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. I was just casting about for something to write about to become like a magazine writer. I thought that would be a, a fun career, you know, as a struggling fiction writer, I wanted to figure out a way to support myself. And so I figured magazine journalism might be it. So when I heard Jeff Daniels was making this film about my hometown, what would it be like to see someone turn your hometown into a film? And said, Donovan, I think I have a piece. Would you give me an assignment? He's like, no, I can't give you an assignment. You're a 25-year-old nobody. But what I can do is I can write you a letter on Harper's letterhead that you can give to the production and they can think that you've got an assignment. So I went and did this piece and I gave it to Donovan. Donovan liked it. He took it to Harper's. They liked it. Suddenly it was published and like... A week after it was on the stands, I get a phone call from an editor at another magazine who's like, hey, I read your piece in Harper's. Do you want to go to the Canadian Arctic to report on NASA's Mars training camp? And I'm like, well, wow, that's how this happens. Uh, someone sees a piece that they like the voice in. You can tell a story. You can remember what happens with some style and some insight. Um, and people want to, to hear more from you. So this was in night. This is in 2000. Things are different now. Things are way different now. I'm not sure my path is really even a viable conceptual example to, to latch on to. However, it does uh, reinforce my belief that the best way to learn how to write magazine pieces is to start with a piece that's important to you. In my case, it was a piece about my hometown. And you have to convince someone to let you tell the piece that you are uniquely well-placed to tell. You have an essay in the book about uh, guides to writing, um, books about writing, um, and it's an interesting mix of skeptical and hopeful. Um, I, I wrote uh, I wrote this piece uh, for the public radio website transom.org uh, not that long ago called Make Your Thing About um, Making Independent Media, which is sort of what I do, and... Um, it bore the intended ironically subtitle, 
uh, 1000% guaranteed path to, uh, absolutely no fail guaranteed success, something like that. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I was surprised by some of the violently negative reactions it got, which made me feel real bad. Well, people's irony-ometers just kind of <laughs> shut down when, when we were discussing. Right. Like, how to... Yeah, sure. But I mean, it, but what it made me, what it made me engage with was the issue of whether it is, you know, to what extent you can teach people creativity, to what extent you can teach people, you know, the skills and talents of whatever it is. And also to what extent it is moral and right to encourage people to pursue paths that are, frankly, unlikely to succeed. I mean, you know, if you start a restaurant, you're also unlikely to succeed. You know, if you... (laughs) More people fail at becoming businessmen than fail at becoming artists. Yeah. is (laughs) A lot more. Yeah. But um, I, I wonder how, after having after having considered that from a number of different perspectives, as a teacher yourself, as someone who came into his career through happenstance, um, and as someone who's you know the the opening essay of this book and one of the most powerful is about three of the greatest English language writers of all time who essentially all had their reputations secured through happenstance. Mm-hmm. Um, how you feel about that now, having, having given it a lot of consideration? I am a foolish optimist. Mm-hmm. I really do believe, because this, this, this is my experience, if you want this enough and you're like fanatically devoted to it, you can make it happen. Every, and then this is a totally... But not to get all Brooke Gladstone on you, but isn't that just because that just happened to yeah, you? No, it's totally happened to me. And because most of my friends are writers, it's happened for them. But then when I really start to think about it, I think of all my friends that are still plugging away and that it hasn't happened for. And they're talented and they're smart and they just haven't gotten the breaks. And so what I view it as is I'm an eternal optimist. Because if you're not an optimist about this stuff, you turn into something awful. You turn into a cynic or you turn into someone that hates the success of other people. And both of those things are just soul-destroying, you know, um, uh, fates to court, right? So I really do believe that the people who have managed to make a living as, at being writers or actors or directors or anything, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of success here too, right? Chuck Lorre has $600 million and, <laughs> and uh, you know, and I, I'm happy that, you know, magazines pay me money to, you know, to go off and report on stuff. So, but the thing that, you know, someone like Chuck Lorre who has more money than he could ever spend and someone like a magazine writer like myself, what we have in common is that we're able to do something we really love. And, you know, and, and if you don't feel lucky, to be able to do that, you're, you're crazy. And that's what I loved about the piece I wrote about Chuck when he, he like faces up to that, where he's like, you know, if I don't take this seriously, then what the hell is my life even about? And I thought that was a really interesting thing for a guy who makes two and a half men to say that, and he does care and he does take it seriously. Um, so I, like I said, I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist. When I deal with students, I ask them, is writing something you would do even if you took out the, I'm going to get published and meet attractive people, the opposite sex because of it, uh, equation. If take that out of the equation, would you still do this? Would you still do it if you were sitting on an island by yourself 
would you still be making up characters and stories in your head? And all of them, of course, instantly say yes. And then I actually press down on them and I bear down on them. And I'm like, you really have to think about this because if the answer is even slightly no, you shouldn't be trying to do this because it's so frustrating and so depressing most of the time that the only thing that really can reinvigorate your drive as a creator at all is actually liking the work. So I try to spread joy and circumspection. I know those two words don't find their way into the same (laughs) sentence, but I try to spread a sense of joy and circumspection about one's chances at this, because if I can do it, um, I really do believe that anyone can. Tom Bissell, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye. It was really great to have you on Thank you, Jesse. It's a pleasure to be here. Tom Bissell's collection of essays on creators and creation is called Magic Hours. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We always close the show with a suggestion from yours truly. It's the outshot. This week, I thought I'd talk a little about my favorite guy. His name is Malcolm Tucker, and he's a press flack for the Prime Minister's office in the UK. Also, he's a fictional character. I should make that clear. And also, also, he's a kind of terrible person. On the thick of it, which has finally made it to US TV on BBC America, Malcolm Tucker terrorizes a made-up cabinet ministry with streams of profanity so densely layered that when they're played on the radio, they basically sound like ship-to-shore Morse code. If enough, you need to learn to shut your right. Today, you have laid your first big fat egg of solid The Thick of It was created by Armando Iannucci, who's writing the HBO comedy Veep. And like Veep, it's about the people behind the veil of power. A group of hapless humans try to save their jobs, and every so often, a fire-breathing monster in the form of Malcolm Tucker tears them a new one. Grown men and women are left shaking in their boots as Tucker turns fire hoses of profanity upon them. Newspaper writers we never see try to tell the public the truth until Malcolm gets hold of them. He did not say unforeseeable. You may have heard him say that, but he did not say that, and that is a fact. Okay, okay, go ahead and print unforeseeable. Listen, see when I tell your wife about you and Angela Heaney at the Blackpool Conference, what would be best, an email, a phone call, or what? Hey, I could write it on a cake with those little silver balls. Your hack husband betrayed you on October the 4th, and congratulations on the new baby. Yeah, maybe it's better to spike it, yeah. Okay, f***ity bye. Tucker is played by Peter Capaldi, the sweet Scottish star of the cult film Local Hero. With his rage turned up to 11. But Tucker is also human. In fact, all of the characters on the show are the cabinet ministers, the prime minister, the press. The satire here cuts so close because the truth being revealed is that even the most powerful men and women in the world are just men and women. None of them are superhuman. They're just trying and a lot of the time failing. Though some of them have superhuman swearing abilities. Just do, otherwise you'll find yourself in the Caucasus, right? In a medieval war zone. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. 
Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You should like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne. All of those words in one long string to get special updates. You can also find us on Twitter at bullseye, and you can find me on Twitter at Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.